You're listening to Vet Candy. and welcome to Working Class. I'm Omar A. Lopez. And I'm Eric Meyer. This podcast is about rights and compliance from both sides of the law. We're going to cover hot topics from the employee and the employer perspective with a plaintiff side attorney and a defense side attorney. We're hoping that you can pick up some helpful knowledge to help you in your next employment issue. Okay, Eric, thanks so much uh, for... uh, joining me again on our podcast. So I'm excited. Me too. Uh, I'm excited. You know, there's been some interesting developments uh, in the in the past couple of, of weeks and months uh, concerning this uh, company called Theranos. Have you heard about it? I've read a thing or two. Yeah. Did you? And I don't know, you know, um, because you're so busy and also you run the uh, uh, the blog, which I still have no idea how you have time to do it. Um, have you had a chance to catch the uh, the the Hulu series, The Dropout? Not yet. Uh, if okay. it doesn't involve blood or um, wrestling or something like that or sports, I'm I'm probably a little bit behind. Okay, okay. This involves blood, but not in the sense that you're talking about. the the uh, The Dropout is uh, actually based on a uh, podcast series by an award-winning journalist named John Carreyrou. Uh, and he actually broke stories about Theranos concerning, uh, among other things, whistleblowers, uh, lack of compliance, and uh, fraud, lying to investors, kind of the whole gamut there. So, um, you know, I was hoping that we could talk today about whistleblowers, but maybe talk a little bit about this Theranos case. Theranos. What do you think? Sounds like a plan. So what do you know about uh, Elizabeth Holmes or Theranos? I know that Elizabeth Holmes isn't worth that much right now. It might be worth even less in the coming weeks and months, staring at a potential 20-plus year jail sentence. And uh, wrote a pretty good wave there for a while after dropping out from Stanford and then it ended. Yes, she she had some. Uh, it, yeah, her net worth was was fantastic at some point, and uh, I think her net worth, along with the company's net worth, uh, completely plummeted. And so, something like uh, nine billion dollars at some point was her net worth, something like that. I think there, I think Theranos was valued somewhere in the multi billion dollar range, and they lost their value almost completely overnight. And again, since this is a legal podcast, to me. You know, um, if we can take any lessons from this, it's kind of, you know, how do we deal with whistleblowers in the workplace? If you are a whistleblower, how do you comport yourself? Uh, And uh, what do we do in a workplace that, you know, in order to foster an environment where people will feel safe uh, on speaking up? So um, first things first, let me give you a little backdrop on, on Theranos. So uh, Elizabeth Holmes, like you said, dropped out of Stanford at 19, and she sort of dreamed up an idea where you could run a whole host of uh, medical testing from a single drop of blood. She was met with some skepticism, but she was able to convince some early investors to provide some funding. Uh, They moved to Silicon Valley. They moved to Silicon Valley and they were able to uh, convince other investors to sort of hop aboard the uh, problem number one, I think, is that the investors and th- the people that were looking at this company and the people that were joining the board were really all non-scientific folk. And so it was people who were looking sort of for the next, what they'd call the Silicon Valley unicorn, you know, the next, the next software, the next Oracle, the next Apple, um, without really thinking past that to determine, hey, one point you know, um, we're going to be treating patients and this actually is going to be either helping or hurting people. So long story short, uh, the the investors being attracted sort of turned into a feeding frenzy and more high profile people came on the board. You had people, again, like the founder of Oracle. You had uh, George Schultz, the former secretary of state. 
Yeah, General James Mattis, uh, who uh, is very high up in the United States Army and the government. And so, um, again, these are all non-scientific advisors, non-scientific board members. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes and her paramour, Sonny Balwani, decided in order to keep the company growing, uh, in order to keep attracting investors and keep making money, um, they were just going to uh, not worry about the fact that the machines really never worked the way they were supposed to. So they used other machines in its place and hid that fact from investors and board members. So for instance, the Siemens machines were being used as opposed to the ones they were supposed to be doing. Uh, anytime they, they communicated with regular, regulators, the uh, data from those machines, the corporate machines that had nothing to do with Theranos were being used. Um, the most interesting thing to me, one of the persons who later became a whistleblower, her name is Erica Chung. She said that it was a common practice at Theranos to uh, look at a set of data. And if you had an outlier, you were instructed to delete the outlier. Just get rid of it. And let's see what that does to our test result here. And so that's not so bad if you're testing for the presence of, I don't know, um, the color red in blood, not a big deal. Uh, however, they were running tests for um, prostate cancer. They were running tests for syphilis. Uh, and so this idea that, you know, yes, there are scientific methods, but here at Theranos, we're just going to delete the outliers. That started to raise quite a few eyebrows. Tyler Schultz uh, at one point uh, made the comment, it sounds like a joke, but it's not, that they decided to run the syphilis tests on basically everyone who was working in the laboratories within Theranos to kind of test to see whether or not it was working appropriately. And the test came back and showed that almost everyone had syphilis. And so um, they didn't really. <laughs> so everyone had to get checked out by other machines to see whether or not they truly had syphilis. But that, again, is something that raised a lot of eyebrows, this idea that, hey, these things are not accurate. Uh, that's one thing. What I've observed you know, from looking at the, you know, I did watch the television show. I did look at a lot of documents that were submitted at trial. I listened to the podcast. And time and time again, what appeared to happen is that Theranos either brushed the problems under the rug or got rid of the people that were speaking up. There was a lab director who didn't seem to like uh, what was going on and was, was sort of uh, bringing up these issues and wasn't really going along with it. Um, at one point, uh, the lab director explained to the higher-ups, uh, I have a directive. My first directive is to do no harm. That's, that's the oath that I take. That's, that's my first and only priority here. And then he was out, right? And so um, they brought in another lab director who coincidentally, and I am not making this up, was Sonny Balwani's dermatologist. His personal dermatologist became the lab director for some time. Um, Anyways, as they continue to brush these things under the rug, uh, as they continue to threaten and to fire the people that are sort of bringing these issues up, um, including Tyler Schultz, by the way, Tyler Schultz uh, was uh, terminated, even though he was related to George Schultz, the former Secretary of State who was on the board. Erica Chung was also terminated. And so these former uh, employees were not satisfied with the state of affairs. And they were also not satisfied with sort of the amount of attention that Theranos was attracting. Everyone was in love with the newest Silicon Valley unicorn. Everyone thought that Elizabeth Holmes was simply the bee's knees. She was getting awards constantly. Um, and then it started to sort of uh, uh, fall down bit by bit. The uh, uh, John Carreyou, broke the first story uh, concerning problems within the uh, within Theranos. And the, the source for that story was actually Tyler Schultz explaining, hey, there's some problems here. We're being told not to look at all the data, get rid of some of these outliers. You know, um, don't worry about what you've learned in science. You know nothing. We know real science here, that type of thing. Uh, and then that first story sort of started attracting other people's attention. Erica Chung and Tyler Schultz, uh, also friends, eventually um, considered whether or not she would continue her whistleblower activities. 
and as she saw that Theranos was sort of um, not being hurt by any of the real bad publicity, she decided to go to something that they couldn't spin uh, in the press. Elizabeth Holmes couldn't just go on TV and completely deny what was going on. So uh, she went to a regulatory agency, a Center for Medicaid Service. I'm sorry. She went to a regulatory agency, the Center for Medicare Services. And uh, because the Theranos devices and their business were somehow wrapped up with Medicare reimbursements, uh, CMS actually had jurisdiction over their laboratory. And so in a uh, months-long review and personal visit to the laboratories, uh, CMS decided this is nothing of what's going on here is actually making sense. There is imminent threat, uh, imminent danger to patient safety. And so they issued first 161 or so page report on all of the things that were wrong with the lab. And then they shut down the Theranos lab for two years. And that spelled disaster for the company. So, um, you know, uh, you, I'm sure that everyone who's listening here can catch up, I think, in more detail by listening to the podcast by John Carey, you, the dropout, or watching the Hulu series. Um, we're just giving you sort of a backdrop here so we can talk about, in working class, uh, what legalities are we dealing with here? So, um, Eric, what do you think? What's the, you know, from the, from the lens of whistleblower laws, what are, we, what are we dealing with here? Well, there are at least two pieces to this, right? You have from just the company's standpoint, you have someone who is blowing the whistle on patient care and safety. And depending on the jurisdiction or jurisdictions in which you operate, if you're a multi-state employer, there may be state-specific laws that protect people who blow the whistle on these issues. And not just if they get it right, but if they have a good faith belief that there are these patient safety issues, right? Employees can engage in this protected activity without fear of reprisal. And if there is some sort of adverse employment action that follows, that it, there's a nexus between the complaint and the adverse employment action, we have a whistleblower violation. That's on the one hand. Then you have, as you pointed out, Omar, you have these federal agencies that can get involved, whether it is the CMS or in a different context, if this were a complaint to the Department of Labor about underpayment of wages or a complaint to the EEOC about discrimination in the workplace, the same retaliation concept applies from within the organization. You can't take action against these whistleblowers. Otherwise, you'll be held liable under federal law. And either the individual who is affected, the whistleblower, can exercise their rights privately, or what often happens is the federal agency will step in and exercise rights on behalf of the individual and go after the, and you're just compounding your issues, they go after the, the employer for not just the underlying uh, safety issue or the underlying discrimination issue, but also for the retaliation itself. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. love my fur babies so much and when they're stressed out it makes me stressed out mine hate loud noises like thunderstorms and fireworks and sometimes they just don't want to be left home alone brave paws is a natural stress and anxiety chewable for dogs it is clinically proven to help calm nervous dogs by maintaining normal cortisol levels what's even better is that it's fast acting and starts working in less than an hour Want to learn more? Check out mybravepaws.com. So let me, so let me break this down a little bit. The, you're talking that we have essentially a couple of different systems in place to protect whistleblowers and also that employers should comply with. You have a regulatory system, depending on what they're in. Let's say, for instance, medical devices. Uh, to my mind, they would be sort of overlapping s 
fears of regulatory oversight on such a device. Uh, and then on top of that, you would have the state-specific law that would that would that could protect a whistleblower depending on what state you're in. But you said something interesting to me. You said reasonable belief, um, as opposed to, for instance, you know maybe you know a proven violation of, uh, say, for instance, a medical regulation or something like that. So can we expound on that a little bit? What do we mean? What do we mean by reasonable belief? Sure. So the essence of it is, is that the complainant doesn't necessarily have to be correct that there was a patient safety issue in the workplace, that there was discrimination in the workplace, that there was a wage and hour issue in the workplace. But if they believe reasonably, I'm sorry, I'm just saying the same words. It's good faith, basically, is the standard, that there's something wrong here and they complain about it. They have these protections because these federal agencies and federal laws want to encourage people to speak up without fear of reprisal. And I've been involved in in, in many investigations, whether it's um, employee safety or patient safety or simply a complaint of discrimination. So-and-so said something to me based on my, my gender, my race, my religion, whatever, and we investigate. And... We are not able to substantiate the initial complaint. It's not to say it didn't happen, but we just, based on a fulsome investigation, can't substantiate it, right? We wouldn't go ahead and then fire the person for complaining because they still may have had a good faith belief that whatever happened to them violated law or some policy or procedure of the workplace, as opposed to someone who just makes up a complaint out of whole cloth. And those are the situations that as management employment lawyers, I get asked about a lot at HR conferences, usually, you know, what happens when someone makes up a complaint? You know, can't the company do something about it? Yes. But how many times has that actually happened where someone just comes in to human resources one morning and totally fabricates a complaint against someone else, it's really not that often. Um, you could be a cynic and say, well, maybe it happens when someone is a bad performer and they're looking to lay down a marker to try and preserve their job or basically protect themselves if they get fired for poor performance. They could always come back and say, no, that's pretextual. You fired me because I complained. But in reality, people who go to those lengths are really few and far between. But I think there's an interesting poly, you know, um, I mean, have I studied this in detail? I would say I've read some of the legislative history for some of these laws. I can't say I'm an expert on every single whistleblower law there is. But for those that have a reasonable belief uh, uh, basis, in other words, you just have to show you had a reasonable belief for complaining in order to be protected under the law. I think there's a good policy reason for that. And, And one of those is I think the employees rarely hold all the cards. They just don't have all of the information necessary to determine if there is a true violation. And in order to foster uh, or even encourage people to speak up, you have that reasonable belief basis. Because if you if you didn't, if you had to show that not only uh, did you believe that the employer was violating some law or engaging in, in unlawful activity or defrauding somebody, but you then had to go and prove it, I think that a lot of people wouldn't speak up anymore. I think you're exactly right. I, I, I have no quibble with that whatsoever. Uh, that, that, that makes complete sense. And, and from an employer standpoint, and we were talking about this before we started recording, when I draft personally for employers, when I'm drafting settlement agreements or I'm drafting separation agreements, a provision I often include for employees to read, acknowledge, sign is some sort of representation on their part that if they were aware of any sort of illegal activity or unethical behavior, that they've brought it to the company's attention, that you let us know about it. So bigger picture companies should be encouraging employees to speak up about these issues so that they can address them. In an ideal world, these underlying issues don't exist. But 
Omar, you were talking earlier about fostering an environment where employees feel safe coming forward. Clearly not going on at Theranos, but for, for other employers, you really want your employees to come forward and say something so that as the employer, you can do something about it. And when that system propagates itself and other coworkers divine, that's probably the wrong word, or, or they appreciate that, that employers are taking complaints seriously, hopefully there aren't too many complaints, but they're taking the complaints that are made seriously, then people do feel comfortable coming forward so that they can be heard and have their issues, issues addressed without fear of reprisal. That's, that's really important. So let me let me fill you in on some of what I've read and watched and heard that that was happening at Theranos in response to complaints, whether they were informal complaints or just discussions. You know, like I like I said before, people were fired, uh, people were threatened with their with losing their job, and some people decided to resign and quit rather than continue to watch this sort of um, I think brazen. Uh, you know, or let's say um, cavalier attitude towards basic scientific method. We're not going to include outliers in our data. A lot of people were not comfortable with that. So they chose to quit. And so the people that are left are the people that can't afford to lose their jobs um, or, you know, are apathetic in some way or, 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 uh, or they're too scared to say anything, you know? And so um, what Theranos did to sort of, you know, as opposed to fostering an open environment where complaints would be looked into and welcomed and you would not be retaliated against, they did the opposite. And one of the things they did is they siloed their employees with key card access. And and if you read the uh, history regarding Theranos, they talk about the fact that there were two worlds. There was the carpeted world, and then there was the laboratory world. And the people in the lab world were not permitted to go into the carpeted world and vice versa. And by siloing uh, employees and, uh, and departments and not permitting them to interact, you know, the chemists had no idea what the analyzers were working on and the analyzers had no idea what the engineers were working on. There was no communication between all those departments. Normally in a company, you want to have some sort of common goal. Uh, but at Theranos, it seemed like everyone had their own, uh, sorry, it seemed like everyone had their own uh, independent goals. And it didn't matter what engineering was working on. The chemists were just going to continue to try to fix whatever the chemistry issue was. Uh, and ultimately, I think it becomes clear as you see what happened is that they never really did have a common goal because everyone everyone who was anyone at that company understood that the machines were really never going to work. There was no way for one drop of blood to do what they said it could it could possibly do, which is diagnose, you know, 200 potential illnesses or something like that. It just wasn't going to happen. I think everyone uh, who was high enough and who knew uh, what was going on um, would have known that. And so the purpose, seemingly the purpose behind siloing the employees and requiring key card access and not permitting people to mingle and talk and discuss and collaborate was to was to really to further the fraud that was being perpetrated on the investors uh, and ultimately on patients. Omar, do you watch the television show on Apple TV called Severance? No, I've been wanting to. No, tell me about it. So Severance, and I don't want to give away any spoilers for anyone who's listening to this, so I'll keep it very generic, but But Severance is about these employees who work for this company called Lumos. And each of the employees gets some sort of brain surgery. And what the brain surgery ends up doing is separating your life outside of the office completely from your life inside of the office. There's this infantilizing phrase, when you're in the office, it's your innie. And when you're outside the office, it's your outie. So the Audi has no idea once the Audi goes into the elevator, the elevator goes up to whatever floor they're on and steps off the elevator, the Audi becomes the innie. And the innie can't remember or doesn't know anything that goes on in the Audi's life and vice versa. And I was thinking about that as you were describing this firewalling that's going on at Theranos. Um, 
by management um, in order to basically improve the company through through their eyes. Um, but people who you know don't need to know what the real deal is are just being kept off in their own you know in their own world. We haven't gotten to the point in in severance where there's been a whistleblower claim yet, but uh, I assume when there is, they'll call one of us and we can you know we can consult. But. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. I can see from an efficiency standpoint how it would make sense, you know, you know, the uh, the idea that you'd want to have someone not bringing in the outside world into the company, and then vice versa from work balance, work life balance perspective, leaving uh, all work issues within the workplace as you leave. Um, but I can't imagine how that would work in practice. So I will definitely check that out. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Um, let's talk, let's talk for a second. Uh, we were talking about the, um, when we're talking about whistleblower protection, um, and I just want to come back to sort of the, the regulatory environment here. And I want to make, you know, kind of make certain that everyone in our audience is aware that we're not just talking about medical device testing. The idea that someone could blow the whistle really just means that they would complain, uh, or file a complaint, whether that's an internal complaint, external complaint. Uh, it could be a complaint to a regulatory agency. And so um, that's what it really means to blow the whistle. That, 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 I think, is what it means to engage in protected activity. And so um, this can take place in a variety of circumstances. Uh, it could take place in terms of occupational safety. Um, it could take place in terms of someone filing a workers' compensation claim or a discrimination or harassment claim um, before many different bodies. It could be a state investigatory agency, such as a human rights commission, or it could be the Equal Employment Opportunity Office, a wage and hour complaint, um, a Fair Labor Standards Act complaint concerning underpayment of wages or you know failure to pay overtime. There is, I think, uh, sort of a robust a uh, system of whistleblower protection, or let's just let's just say what it is. It's it's a it's pro- it's protection from retaliation for people who complain about violations of the law, and and that's sort of just scratching the surface. That's right. There's also a participation element as well. So if someone files a complaint or charge of discrimination with the EEOC, for example, and the EEOC then begins to conduct an investigation. And as part of that investigation, the EEOC wants to interview the charging party's coworkers, right? The coworkers then have this cloak of protection around them for reprisal based on their participation in the investigation. Theoretically, that could happen as well before we even get to the EEOC, right? If there's an internal complaint of discrimination and a witness or two comes forward and is interviewed, those witnesses are then protected from reprisal but here's the key, because they participated, right? The same way that someone who complains is protected because they complained. Now, it's not a get out of jail free card, right? If I complain and then I stop showing up to work or I slack off on my job, I can be disciplined and ultimately terminated for those legitimate business reasons, i.e., I'm not doing my job. But that's where it gets a little bit gray right? Um, That's where the employee may perceive that disciplinary action that follows a complaint or participation in an investigation is because I participated or complained versus because I, my performance metrics were down 
Because and that gray area is where litigation lives, right? Where it thrives <laughs> in the gray area that you're discussing. It's what it's what's going to put our kids through college. It's all interesting stuff, um, but ultimately, hopefully, we don't get that far, right? Most people who complain don't use that as a launching pad for, okay, now I don't have to do my job, right? Most people who complain are scared. They're concerned about something that's happening either to them or around them, and they just want the problem addressed. And that's really, in my shoes, when I represent management, that's why it's so important for management to take the, well, one, to have a vehicle, a mechanism for employees to complain. So an employee handbook, an anti-harassment policy, a whistleblower policy, whatever. Some way that employees know that here's what I can do to speak up. And then the second part is taking that complaint seriously. Could mean bringing in an outside investigator. It could mean doing the investigation in-house. But what it does mean is, is doing something about it and communicating, maybe not everything, but at least in general terms, to the complainant, what the company is doing to respect their complaint and take it seriously. Because Omar, I don't know about you, well, I, I'm guessing that you've had a client or two who has come to you who may have lost their job, who, have, who has complained about discrimination and said to you, I complained, but the company didn't do anything about it. When in reality, the company took it very seriously and did something about it, but where they fell short was they didn't communicate back to your client to say, here's what we did and here's how we resolved the issue. Yeah, and I think, I think that's sort of a self-defeating attitude from the employer's perspective by maintaining such tight secrecy on something that maybe doesn't have to be secret. Um, because I, I'll tell you what really, really kills you is not knowing. <laughs> it's one thing to have perceived or felt that, that something was happening. You, you work up the courage to complain about it. And then you hear nothing in return, just absolute silence for eight months, nine months. And then something happens, whatever it is. And you know, reasonable minds can differ as to whether or not the person has a case, but they lose their job. And so you know, the employee not having heard anything uh, may uh, reasonably conclude that, hey, this must be because I complained and they never got back to me. So they must have been afraid. They found something and they fired me. And that, again, is where sort of litigation thrives. I think a more appropriate uh, solution would be to tell someone, hey, we're looking into this. Can't tell you what exactly we're doing, but we are looking into this. We are interviewing people. You should not retaliate against anyone that we're going to interview. And we're not going to retaliate against you. And so that, I think there's a lack of communication sometimes that, um, you know, that really gives litigation a chance to, to sort of hop up there uh, and, and take over the, the narrative. I mean, what, what communication do you think makes sense, uh, not just to the complainant, but to the other people that are being interviewed and even to, let's say, the accused? I generally have a script when I'm conducting the interviews. So I, I try to make the person with whom I'm speaking as, I don't want to say comfortable, but not uncomfortable as possible. So explaining my role, explaining what the company is doing, what I'm going to do to assist the company, asking them, has anyone threatened you? Asking them, has anyone told you that you need to withhold information from me, right? Trying to create as safe a haven as possible for people to be open and honest with me. And then, and I'm, I'm leaving out stabs because we could be here all day, but at the conclusion, reminding them that, well, I don't represent you. I represent the company. I do want to know if maybe you remember something that we didn't discuss today that you feel is important to your claim. I'd like to know about that. Or, um, there, you should have no fear of reprisal. I don't expect anyone to retaliate against you because retaliation is prohibited here at this company. However, if you feel as if anything is happening to you in any way, shape, or form that could relate to you meeting with me today, let me know. 
Let your manager know, unless your manager is the one doing it. Let human resources know. Let all of the above know so that we can address it. So, um, so let me tell you about a fact pattern that I run into, I think, I, I think quite often when it comes to whistleblower complaints. Uh, an employee complains about an unlawful activity and the employer will investigate. But rather than investigate the complaint itself, they investigate the employee for misconduct, whatever it is. Uh, the way they made the complaint, they used profanity, they were late the day after they made the complaint, whatever it is, but they don't look into the whistleblower complaint. They just ignore it. Uh, and then, it, so that's scenario one. <laughs> and then, uh, and that usually results in the termination of the employee, which then results in them calling me and then it results in me suing them. Uh, and then the, uh, well, let's go back. So that's, that's scenario one. What are your thoughts on, on that scenario? As you describe it, it's a misstep because the employer shouldn't lose sight of, well, we've got an underlying complaint that this employee has brought to the attention of management. If they use foul language, they are brash about it. Maybe it's because they haven't complained before. Maybe it's because they're fed up, Right they're not going to be logically in the happiest mood when they come forward and complain. Most people aren't. So I think as management, we have to have a thicker skin and some tolerance for someone who complains inartfully, to put it mildly, or rudely, to put it uh, at the other end of the spectrum. Can you investigate the complainant for certain other issues? I suppose you can, but ideally, if you're doing that, you should have already been doing that, right? If there's something that's that's been ongoing, the complaint of harassment, whistleblowing shouldn't deter that underlying investigation. But to use that complaint as the springboard for investigating the complainant for some kind of performance issue or latenesses or something like that, that's a bad look. Because when the employee goes to you and sues, the documentation, the timeline is going to support that the employer retaliated against the employee for complaining by investigating them. That would have a chilling effect. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. Yeah, and these, these cases more often than not come down to timing. Uh, I've been litigating these cases for a long time, and you know, I think uh, a lot of the focus that I wanted to have on this podcast, we spoke about this, is uh, New Jersey SEPA, the Conscientious Employee Protection Act of New Jersey, which is a very robust, very progressive whistleblower protection act. And uh, all of the case law, the judges, um, they really come down to, to say one thing, you know, which is timing alone is not going to prove a case, but it can definitely suggest that there's retaliation going on if it's only been seven days since they complained. If it was 40 hours, 48 hours since they complained, uh, or even two months, you know, and if there's really no other, um, nothing else that happens in between, they had a complaint and then you fired them. That is suggestive of retaliation. I wrote about something like this on my blog today uh, where um, an individual got a bad performance review in June and then got a written warning in October. And it was so upsetting to this individual, the final written warning, that he had to be escorted from the building. And as he's being escorted from the building, his manager tells him, 
that he should call an employee assistance program. This individual has some underlying disabilities, by the way. And HR then follows up and says, you should apply for short-term disability. Okay, so he does apply for short-term disability, ends up taking FMLA leave, goes out on leave. Two months later, while on leave, the employer fires him. And this is all alleged. But you talk about timing, right? If you're going to terminate because someone has engaged in employee misconduct or is a poor performer, you want to do it quickly before that person takes protected leave and certainly not after you've recommended that person to take protected leave. So in a whistleblower case, it's not to say that you can't fire someone the day after or two days or three days after they complain, but you better be darn sure that you've got documentation supporting or affirming that decision, email, a memo, something, before they've complained, right? So you can hold that up in court if it ever got there and say, look, the decision, the die was already cast, right? They complained, but it's a moot point. We were firing this person anyway. If that doesn't exist... Right, there's a, there's a three-year history of being aggressive with customers and you know, at one point the police were called and they've been written up three times and they were suspended once. Hey, you know what? I'm looking at that case and I'm taking it with a grain of salt. However, if all you have is a memo written the day after the complaint came in saying this employee has a long history of performance issues and, you know, being aggressive and uh, just being a terrible person all around. But the first time it ever made it into print was the day after the complaint. And two weeks before they were fired, then you know, that's where someone like me comes in and starts to look at that. Yeah, that's exhibit A. That's a very suspicious uh, timeline. That is enough for me to get through summary judgment 99 times out of 100, you know, um, because there is no, there literally is no history other than, uh, you know, sort of a, in at least the way I'm looking at it, I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, I get it. But it's, it's revisionist, I think, to say, hey, this person has a long-standing history, but where's the documentation to support that? It's so plainly self-serving, too, right? It's one thing to summarize a discussion that you've had with an employee in real time, to memorialize a complaint in real time. But when, and maybe we're getting a little bit far afoot from where we want it to be, but for employers that don't document performance issues, in real time and wait until after they've complained to, oh, let's put together a huge memo of everything that this employee's done wrong. That's, that's not good HR. I mean, that's, that's not right. good business. But th- now there, there is something else, which is sort of the reverse of this, which, you know, I, I, I always find interesting, which is there are legitimate disciplinary issues. And then there's also a legitimate complaint. And then now you have sort of the opposite timeline, you know, where um, there are disciplinary issues that came up before, but then you have, uh, I think, a reasonable belief that unlawful activity was afoot. And so somebody complains and now they, they are technically protected in a sense, but there's also these underlying issues. And so when they're then fired for their underlying issues, again, litigation could result. It's not exactly the same. Um, but it's certainly, I think, a better case for the employer there to say, look, this, this has been going on for a long time and it didn't stop. And the fact that they complained doesn't insulate them. They can't do whatever the hell they want. For instance, safety issues, you know, someone wasn't wearing their safety glasses, you know, on the machine shop floor. And this is the 17th time that we told them and they were on a last chance warning or something like that. Uh, then I, then I would say, yeah, the employer might have a point. And that's why they invented employment practice liability insurance in the event that there's some sort of a lawsuit. So, yeah, I mean, I'm fairly risk aggressive with my clients. And I tell them that an intervening complaint of harassment, discrimination, I want FMLA, I need an accommodation, something like that, is not a, it doesn't wipe the slate clean, right? But... It's something you have to consider. You know, I always look at it this way. I, you know, I, I get what you're saying in terms of, hey, if you're going to terminate, do it quickly before someone continues to sort of gather these protective activities. 
but I always look at it this way, just from from having practiced this law for quite some time. If there is some some uh, something short of termination, which could be employed to help someone, sounds great. You, you said you mentioned that someone was being placed on EAP, Employment Assistance Program. Um, you know, a coach, a sabbatical, whatever it is. You know, uh, someone may have legitimate disciplinary performance issues, whatever it is, but they could be helped through it rather than just kind of, you know, canned, then um, I always think that that is not necessarily such a bad thing for an employer to be, you know, to be seen as uh, a bit more humanistic towards their employees. And then if the issues continue, then I think you're well within your right to terminate. But yes, you know, some it, it is sort of a loaded issue because the longer something persists, the more that an employee can kind of, you know, they can, they could potentially uh, come up with reasons to 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 take leave, to get protection, whatever it is. I think most sophisticated employers will do that. Like th- they'll have some form of a progressive discipline policy in their handbook, which in most circumstances they will follow. Right? We'll start with a verbal counseling, then maybe it, it, it escalates the next time to a written warning. It escalates the next time to a I don't know a suspension, and then a termination of employment. But baked into that policy is the latitude to depart from progressive discipline if someone does something that is just so bad that you don't just want to give them a slap on the wrist, you want to terminate their employment. So when employers follow that, I'm not the hugest fan of progressive discipline, but when employers follow that or use that as a guide, we avoid a lot of these situations that you just described, Omar, Right where it's just kind of out of the blue, Ooh, someone's terminated. So the, there is that buildup to give people the chance to rehabilitate, learn to, from their mistakes, and and improve. I mean that would be ideal, but it doesn't work that way all the time. Right. There's some. There's some. We talked about this on the last podcast. There are some bad eggs, <laughs> and you know, or or maybe it's just a bad fit, and uh, and they're just not cut out for that position, or. Um, you know, someone doesn't fit within the culture or whatever it is. It, it, I know that as a plaintiff's employer, uh, sorry, as a plaintiff's attorney, I get kind of a bad name for making the, you know, jump into conclusions or something. But there's not always a nefarious intent underlying the reason to terminate or to sort of, you know, organize employees into a team that, that someone would want to succeed with, you know. Uh, and I get that. Um, there's something that, that we haven't really dealt with, which is the, uh, which is the the fallout? What are the what are the risks of you know not taking a whistleblower complaint seriously? What could potentially happen? I, and I'll start this off. Um, you know, at least if we're using Theranos as sort of a, a guide here, uh, they had the laboratory shut down. There were uh, regulatory fines that were uh, placed. There were something. Uh, upwards of $10,000 per day uh, as long as the um, underlying issues were not abated. And like I said, there was at least 161 issues that were pointed out. Um, And these are not easy issues to abate. You know, these these are very difficult things to deal with, not the least of which is, hey, you have no true uh, medical laboratory oversight in this company uh, and the people that you have working for you are not trained properly. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Quincy Hawley, and I'm here to tell you about a new show. It's Vet Candy Rounds with the Hawleys. That's right, Dr. Tierra, the love of my life, and I have teamed up to bring you the most fascinating cases in the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or a podcast platform of your choice, only on Vet Candy Radio. You know, so having a the regulatory body come down, start issuing fines or shutting you down, I think that's definitely one of the major risks. Uh, um, what do you think in terms of your your ex, your experience and expertise? The the easiest risk to see, the one that's right in front of you 
is from the individual who believes they've been retaliated against, right? That person could then turn around and file a lawsuit. But you've touched upon an important point, Omar, and that is bigger picture, a regulatory agency gets involved, or maybe it's a publicly traded company. I think back to uh, what was going on with when, uh, I don't remember so much with Harvey Weinstein, but certainly with Wynn, where there were these allegations of sexual harassment in the Me Too era that were not being addressed. I think Activision as well, uh, potentially Uber. You have shareholder lawsuits uh, because the shareholders see that the company is not taking these complaints seriously. It affects the company financially and therefore will affect shareholder value. So we're talking about much bigger lawsuits than just one person coming forward claiming discrimination. And ultimately, to your point, when the regulators get involved and these um, complaints, these whistleblower complaints have merit, then the companies ultimately get shut down. I mean, if that's the case, you, you are built on a house of cards anyway. You're just seeing how long he get away with it. Um, but there, there are some much greater risks than one person or a couple people coming forward with private lawsuits. Right. And even the private lawsuits themselves have teeth, you know, especially when it comes to these sort of state specific uh, whistleblower laws, New Jersey, SEPA, you know, you have the whole gamut uh, in terms of uh, wages, emotional distress, punitive damages, attorney's fees and costs, any, any given case for someone who's sort of a mid-level earner um, could easily go over seven figures uh, if it went to trial. Yeah. For a small company, it could conceivably be bet the company type litigation because, like you said, there are no caps, at least in the state of New Jersey, there are no caps on compensatory damages under the Conscientious Employee Protection Act. Um, the wages, the back wages, if the person can't find new work, could add up. But really, it's the compensatory damages, punitive damages, potentially. And the longer the case goes on, you're not only paying the other side's attorney's fees, the plaintiff's attorney's fees if they prevail, but I don't know any defense side litigators that handle these cases pro bono. So you've got to pay your own lawyers you know, several hundred dollars an hour to defend this case. And it's not as if you, when you win or if you win, you get to say to the judge, oh, hey, judge, we want the plaintiff to pay our fees. Let's assume the judge could even award that. How many plaintiffs can afford to pay the fees? Yeah, you're going to have an uncollectible judgment. What's the point of that? And that, that's, the, that's kind of the case, I think, when, when there's a lack of compliance, when there is a lack of taking these things seriously, not looking into it. Um, what you're really buying yourself is a situation where even if you win, you lose. You could win as an employer. I think you could definitely win. Uh, but you end up losing anyways because you've spent two hundred and fifty thousand, three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollars. Um, spent four hundred thousand dollars on uh, legal fees that could have been avoided, I think, by taking sort of a mature approach to uh, the entire system within within the the company. Um, what what systems are we talking about here? You know, we've we've heard. I mean, if you look at the case law, you, you look at things. Do they call them sensing and monitoring mechanisms? Um, and I think a lot of these things are a bit opaque for people to look at that and, and kind of make sense of it. But what what systems are we talking about that are going to um, help to prevent sort of a compliance nightmare for a company? I think it starts with an employee handbook at, at the most basic level. A policy or procedure that says that this type of behavior is not tolerated, and here's what you as an employee can do about it if you believe you've been the victim of X, right? Or you perceive that the company is doing something unlawful, illegal, uh, endangering others, what have you. Here's what you can do or say um, and to whom you should go. Ideally, you follow that up with regular training once a year, maybe every other year. And it's not just the employees who are trained, but it's also the managers who are trained, not just how to complain, but how to address the complaints that come in. You know, how should they be reported? To whom? What kind of triage steps should you take if you get a complaint? That kind of stuff. The next step is once you get these complaints, 
making sure that you have systems in place to address them. Talked earlier about it could be an in-house investigation. If you have a robust HR department with experience or in-house counsel, that could be it. Maybe you're bringing in an outside investigator to look into a complaint of, let's say, harassment. And then ultimately, it's bringing that all to a head and, and, and improving the workplace based on, based on your findings. And then in parallel, or I should say separate, just having a system in place for what happens when the regulators show up at your door, right? The Department of Labor knocks or sends you a letter that says, we're going to be there in a couple of days. Have all your records uh, of all the widget makers ready. We want to see their, their, um, what they've been paid and the hours they've worked. Uh, for the last two years, you need to have this stuff ready. So it's not easy running a business. So let me tell you, um, and this is for everyone out there, because Eric, I know you deal with this. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about my, you know, my take on what you've said, which I agree with, by the way. And I think it's spot on. Uh, but just a couple of points. The employee handbooks, absolutely necessary. Uh, however, I think it's really important to get competent advice when you're drafting an employee handbook. This is not something that should be grabbed off of uh, off of an internet search because they're not all created equal. And there's a lot of, I think, employee handbooks that are out there that are sort of free to download, or maybe you can get it from some website that'll sell it to you that are not going to be compliant, definitely not for your state. Uh, and they're very likely outdated or just quite frankly made up. And um, I have litigated cases against those sort of, you know, um, downloadable employee handbooks. And they, they help the employer, not one iota, but they help me a lot. <laughs> and so that's part, yeah, that's like one part. The other part is in terms of training, what I look at and what I think the case law supports is that the training really ought to be for everyone from a top-down perspective to show that there's a commitment to fostering this culture of compliance with whistleblower laws, compliance with discrimination, anti-discrimination, anti-harassment laws. Um, because if you allow certain people to, to sort of sit out, you know, the main supervisors, the main managers, the COO, the CEO were never trained. And then later there's an accusation against them. Then the employer doesn't get the benefit of that training, I think. And, uh, and, and as a plaintiff's attorney, I'm always looking at that. The, the three things I'm going to look at are, are going to be, you know, what kind of written policies or written handbook is there to, that prohibits this kind of uh, conduct, such as retaliation. Uh, what kind of training was there? And uh, show me the the proof of the training, right? That they'd really want to see that. Um, and then ultimately, some some kind of uh, reporting or complaint procedure, some mechanism, something formal, where uh, someone has the ability to go to, you know, their supervisor or their supervisor's supervisor. And if those are the people that are sort of in the chain of command that are coming down on this person and they don't want to do that, then there's maybe there's a hotline. There's got to be multiple escape routes for an employee who is feeling a certain way so that they go ahead and make their complaint. If those escape routes are cut off, I think that's when you kind of, you know, just, just from a purely uh, practical standpoint, that's when you end up with regulatory issues because the employee has nowhere to go all right, so I'm going to call OSHA then, or I'm calling the Department of Labor because I have nowhere else to go. Um, that's that's when you start getting investigators sort of walking on on your land. Um, and I, and I'll tell you my favorite my favorite things to see when I send out uh, requests for discovery and I'm asking for handbooks, policies, and training, and I get back none of those documents exist. I know I'm doing really great. <laughs> you know, I know that this trial is going to be a blast. So. Um, I, again, I think you're spot on in terms of uh, how, you know, how the employers need to comply with these and, and just kind of how to foster this type of environment so that, you, you know, you don't end up with some kind of compliance nightmare. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Julio Alonso, and I'm here to tell you about my new show on Pet Candy TV. You can learn all about how to take the best care of your pets. 
Stream at My Pet Candy 24-7 on YouTube, iTunes, and most other video platforms. So this has been another episode of Working Class, the show where two attorneys on opposite sides of the law discuss employment law issues from both the employee and the employer perspective. My name is Omar Lopez, and if you wanted to hear more from me, you can follow me on social media at The Lopez Firm. Omar, I feel like this is bringing us closer. I write a blog called TheEmployerHandbook.com, and listeners are free to check that out, and they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks again for joining. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.